Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 340. Today's big Bible questions are, why has it taken so long for Jesus to return, and when will he return? Well, hello, friends, and a hearty happy Tuesday to you. We've had some new listeners jump on in the past few days, so shout out to our new listeners in Monterey, California, which is close by the Bible Reading Podcast bunker, as well as Queensland, Australia, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, and Mobile, Alabama. Thank you all for joining us. Today's readings begin with 1 Chronicles 29, then Micah 6, Luke 14, and 2 Peter 3, which will serve as our focus chapter. Today we're discussing the second coming, specifically the reason why Jesus has not returned for almost 2,000 years now. That seems like a long time to wait, right? Why is it taking Jesus so long to return? Well, I will tell you that people in the church have been asking that question for many, many years, many centuries, really. Similarly, people in the church have also been assuming that Jesus would return in their lifetimes for many years, and that has obviously not happened thus far, so what gives? Why the long delay? Let's read our passage in 2 Peter 3 and see if we can find some answers here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you will recall the previous words previously spoken by the holy prophets in the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard, so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. 
So I would put this passage of 2 Peter 3 right up there with Matthew 24 and its parallels in Luke and Mark and 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, and some chapters in Revelation as really being the most important scriptures in the Bible on the return of Jesus. So what did we learn about the end times and the second coming here in this short passage? Well, we learned that scoffers or mockers will make fun of how long it has been since Jesus promised to return. That's true. We learned that a day of fire and judgment will come upon the present earth and the heavens, which is kind of interesting. We learned time works very different for the Lord in, the, in a way that's just not really easily understandable. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. I've thought about that verse for decades, literally, ever since I heard it when I was a kid. Don't think I understand exactly what's being said there. It sounds pretty fascinating, though, and I think a a good conclusion is time works differently, or he exists outside of time, or something along those lines. Finally, we learn that Jesus is not slow in returning, but he's patient wanting all to come to repentance. Well, consider this. If Jesus had come in 1917 or 1918 or even 1920 when many Jehovah's Witnesses erroneously predicted the end of the world and the return of Jesus, none of us right now listening would still be alive. Well, I actually guess maybe it's ageism to assume that none of you listening to this podcast is over 99, but if you are, my great apologies, and I'm so glad you're listening. That's incredible. But if Jesus had returned in 1988 as a best-selling book from my teen years predicted, which I think was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, which was followed up by 89 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 89, if he'd returned then, or even if he'd returned in 1994 as a less best-selling book that I actually have on the bookshelf right behind me, about five feet from my head, it predicted that, then none of my kids would exist. Now, why do I have that book on my bookshelf? Well, it was like a 600-page book, and I bought it for a quarter at the library, and I've gotten a lot of laughs at it. So out of it. It's called 1994, the year of the return of Jesus. Now, it didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen, because my kids wouldn't be here. I've got five kids. I love them. I'm glad, in one sense, that the Lord has tarried for so long. He's delayed his return, or delay in our eyes, not delay in his eyes, and uh, because I wouldn't know my kids. You know what, though? If he came back in 2020, wouldn't hurt my feelings at all. But 2 Peter 3 makes it abundantly clear that Jesus will tarry. There will be what seems from our perspective delay. I certainly think that Peter's inspired thousand years day paradox seems to indicate that the Lord, in fact, would wait at least a thousand years before returning, maybe 2,000. Now, who knows? I can't prove anything from that, but it seems weird to include that if it's not going to be at least a thousand years, right? It's a weird uh, metaphor, paradox, whatever it is. It's a weird thing to include if it's not going to be a thousand years because it doesn't make sense apart from the return of Jesus taking at least a 1,000 or 2,000 years, I guess. But who knows? That's totally me guessing and speculating, so warning on that. But the point here is that there are multiple clear signs in this passage that the return of Jesus would be so long in taking place that scoffers and skeptics would mock the very idea. And it would be so long before it happened that maybe Peter's 1,000 years day statement would actually make some sort of sense. Now, 
I do not believe that the secret time or year of Christ's return is somehow encoded or hidden in Scripture. You simply cannot figure it out from the Bible. We have discussed this before, but the big reason you can't figure it out from the Bible, because Jesus says he did not know the day of his return, and I don't believe the Holy Spirit, who inspired Scripture, knew either based on this testimony of Jesus, which is in both Matthew 24:36 and Mark 13:32. Now concerning that day, Day and hour, says Jesus, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Well, if Jesus says only the Father knows about the day and hour of his return, you know what? That's good enough for me. I take from that declaration that nobody, no human, no angel can precisely decode the time of Jesus' return from Scripture But that said, I do think we can find clues in what appear to be hints. And I don't mean clues about the exact time. I mean clues about the general time. Because Jesus says that it shouldn't take us as surprising as a thief in the night, although it will take the world as surprising as a thief in the night. And I believe that clues and hints about the timing of Jesus' return really are pretty abundant in 2 Peter 3. And in that passage... Every clue we have seemed to indicate that there will be many, many years that pass between the first advent of Jesus, advent means coming, and his second advent or his second coming. And now, lest that make you relax and you say, oh, geez, well, I probably have at least another, uh, what, 30 years to get to, well, maybe not 30 years, maybe I have at least another 15 years to get to 2000. I, I don't want you to relax. I don't think you should. I'm not telling you it's going to be 2000 years. I've no idea. And I need to tell you that there's a great tension in scripture between God's imminent return, which means it could happen suddenly any second, and God's patience that has drawn out time greatly. Here's the thing. We see both elements of this tension in our passage today. God's seeming delay is patient love for many of us, and yet, says Peter, he's coming like a thief. What does that mean? It means it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be suddenly. And here's Charles Spurgeon captures both sides of that truth very well and gives us quite a sobering warning. Spurgeon says, how can you say when we talk to you about preparing to die that we are talking about things that are far off? Don't be foolish. I implore you, let these warnings lead you to decision. Far be it from me to cause you needless alarm, but is it needless? I'm sure I love you too well to distress you without cause, but is there not cause enough? Come now, says Spurgeon. I press you most affectionately. Answer me and say, does not your own reason tell you that anxiety for you is not misplaced? Ought you not at once to lay to heart your Redeemer's call and obey your Savior's appeal? The time is short. Catch the moments as they fly and hasten to be blessed. This is a bit of an altar call from Spurgeon. He continues, Remember also that even if you knew that you should escape from accident and fever and sickness and sudden death, Death, yet there is one grand event that we too often forget, which may put an end to your day of mercy as suddenly. Have you never heard that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified on Calvary, died on the cross, and was laid in the tomb? Do you not know that he rose again on the third day, and that afterwards he spent a little time with his disciples? He took them to the top 
of the Mount of Olives and there before their eyes ascended into heaven a cloud ultimately hiding him from their view? Have you forgotten the words of the angels when that happened who said, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven? Jesus will certainly come a second time to judge the world. Of that day and of that hour knows no man, no, not the angels of God. He will come as a thief in the night to an ungodly world. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage just as they were when Noah entered into the ark and they knew not until the flood came and swept them all away. In a moment, we cannot tell when, says Spurgeon. Perhaps it may be before the next words escape my lips. A sound far louder than any mortal voice will be heard above the clamors of worldly traffic and above the roaring of the sea. That sound as of a trumpet will proclaim the day of the Son of Man. Behold, the bridegroom comes, go out to meet him, will sound throughout the church, and the world will ring out this clear note. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which crucified him. Jesus may come tonight. If you were to do so, would you then tell me that I am talking about far off things? Did not Jesus say, Behold, I come quickly? His delaying or tarrying may be long to us, but to God it will be brief. We are to stand hourly watching and daily waiting for the coming of the Lord from heaven. Oh, I pray you do not say that the Lord delays his coming, for that was the language of the wicked servant who was cut in pieces, and it is the mark of mockers of the last days that they say, where is the promise of his coming? But don't be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. But listen to the undoubted voice of prophecy and the word of God. Behold, I come quickly." Be ready, for in such an hour as you don't think it, the Son of Man will come. And I think Spurgeon balanced it excellently there. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. He may come before you get this podcast I recorded about the unknowability of his coming, and he may not. We don't know. It He could tarry for longer. He could come tomorrow. We don't know, but Jesus tells us, be ready. And my friends, we should take heed of that warning, even though from our perspective, apparently not from God's perspective, but from our perspective, it has been a long time. That doesn't mean it's going to be a long time more. He could come in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Be ready. We continue with First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. Then King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, God has chosen him alone, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because the building will not be built for a human, but for the Lord God. So to the best of my ability, I have made a provision for the house of my God, gold for the gold articles, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx, stones for mounting, and timony, stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and a great quantity of marble." Moreover, because of my delight in the house of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the house of my God, over and above all that I provided for the holy house, 100 tons of gold of Ophir and 250 tons of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the buildings, the gold for the gold work and the silver for the silver for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? Then the leaders of the households, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officials in charge 
of the king's work gave willingly. For the service of God's house, they gave 185 tons of gold and 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the Lord's house under the care of Jaleel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because of their leader's willingness to give, for they had given to the Lord wholeheartedly. King David also rejoiced greatly. Then David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, May you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand. It is in your hand to make great and give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. For we are aliens and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow. Without hope, Lord our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart. Now I have seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts towards you. Give my son Solomon an undivided heart to keep and carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes, and to build the building for which I have made provisions." Then David said to the whole assembly, Blessed be the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They knelt low and paid homage to the Lord and the king. The following day they offered sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs along with their drink offerings, and sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. Then for a second time, they made David's son Solomon king. They anointed him as the Lord's ruler and Zadok as priest. Solomon sat on the Lord's throne as king in place of his father David. He prospered and all of Israel obeyed him. All the leaders and the mighty men and all of King David's sons as well pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been bestowed on any king over Israel before him. David, son of Jesse, was king over Israel. The length of his reign over Israel was forty years. He reigned in Hebron for seven years and in Jerusalem for thirty-three. He died at a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon became king in his place. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, note that they are written in the events of the seer Samuel, the events of the prophet Nathan, and the events of the seer Gad, along with all his reign, his might, and the incidents that affected him in Israel and all the kingdoms of the surrounding lands. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you, or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. 
I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you, my people. Remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you of what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still the treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword." You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. The statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residence an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his field fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of his servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he is having back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes... You slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate it and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Praise be to God. Well, dear friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. If you have prodigals in your life, may they who are lost now be found by the grace and power of Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.